Hey, our main passage for the morning is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I'm going to give it a, a read. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We're in a series where we're studying through the book of Acts, and we've arrived at verse 12, and we're seeing how the disciples were positioned for power because they were in the right place. Last week, we talked about the ending of our little series on the right place. There were five weeks on that. You can catch up on podcasts or YouTube if you missed it. Today, we're going to start a little series within the series about being the right people. See, the disciples were positioned for power because they were in the right place with the right people doing the right practices. And and in this text here in Acts chapter 1, we see the listing of the 11 disciples. Uh, and then it says that Jesus' mother was there, Mary. That there were some of the other women who had followed Christ were there. That Jesus' brothers and sisters were there. And that there was 120 total. Now, over the course of three and a half years, lots happened for this group to be the group that were in that room on that place for what was about to happen which was the coming of Pentecost. Now, most of us know because of a work environment or a team environment or a vacation environment that you can be in the exact right place, but it can be ruined if you're there with not the right people. And where we're going now uh, in our little series here is what does it look like to be the right people? And it may not look like we think it looks. And in the text here, as you read through this, particularly the 11 that are named, the disciples, it might be easy to look in and say, ah, they're all the same. They're Jewish guys who grew up five to 10 miles apart from each other. Uh, they're relatively the same age. And so being the right people means that we're all exactly the same. But that would only really be half of the story. For as you begin to look at even the 11 disciples, you'll see that there was economic differences, occupation differences, uh, familial differences, uh, political differences. In fact, even to the extreme that you could have for uh, Jewish people of that time. In there, then, you also have the women who had began to follow Jesus. We hear some of their stories. So there are social and cultural differences. There's Jesus's uh, brothers and sisters who didn't really really follow Jesus or believe him to be Messiah until after his resurrection. So you could say up until that point, there had been religious or faith differences. But through all of that, over the course of three and a half years, through God's divine plan, this was the group of people that he chose to launch his movement through. And here's what we want to learn as we study this this morning. What does it look like for us to be right people? Right people in a right place, positioned for God to move. Positioned for God to move in power. Now, when God moves corporately, we often call that revival or movement. Uh, but we also want to see God move personally. We want to be positioned for power personally. So that we might become more Christ-like. So that we might be transformed individually. A doctrinal term is sanctified. That we might become more like like Christ. And so today, we're going to kick off a, a new little series within this series talking about what does it look like to be right people. 
This morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through three things that are present in this text and then are present all throughout the book of Acts that have divided the church throughout the years. These three things tend to be the three things that split the Christian church um, and have split it for, uh, well, about 2,000 years or so. They maintain a little bit of unity, uh, but we'll look at it passage later. It didn't last very long. And so here are the three. The first is generational differences. The second is denominational differences. Uh, And the third is economic differences. These three things then and today uh, seem to split the church, divide the church. And so I want to talk about what it looks like for us to be right people, how these three differences in our church here at Redemption could divide us like they have divided the church for centuries, or they could make us more Christ-like, and they could actually bring us together, make us more the picture of the church that Jesus came to plant. To what end? To the sake of the mission of Christ. To what end? To the sake of the glory of Christ, his high priestly prayer that we would be one, that there would not be division in his church. And so this morning, uh, we're going to start a little series that, that hopefully will help us walk down that path. In that, I'm going to bring up a couple of values that we have as a church. We have seven stated values. Number one is this is God's church. But underneath that, we have a couple values that will actually come out in this uh, sermon series uh, that will help us understand who we are at redemption. Let's start with the first one, generational differences. Uh, it is believed that Peter was the oldest of the disciples. And so even in the uh, disciples, there are some generational differences. As you go through the first 30 years of the church, which is kind of the story written in the New Testament, you're going to see much said about old versus young. And in our culture, outside of the church, of course, we've seen generational differences. And it's always talked about, it's talked about politically, it's talked about socially, it's talked about uh, from a career perspective, millennials are blamed for everything still, right? And we look at the generations and we see how there are divides and there are preferences based on generation. So certainly we see this culturally, but we also see it in the church. I mean, there are about 400,000 or so churches across the country, and we know that there are a decent amount of churches, and we would look and we say, ah, those are, that's like an old church. And in the old church, right, like if you're in your 50s, you're the young people. Oh, those young guys in their 50s, like they have their AARP card, but they're the young ones, right? And the older ones, well, they're older than that. And what do we see often in these churches? They're a family. They love each other. It's beautiful. Uh, there's oftentimes um, a lot of money in the church, or the church is well endowed. Um, but literally, what happens to these churches? They die off. Buildings sit empty. No one under 30 has walked in the doors in a long time. Of course, then we have the opposite extreme. We see this. Church planning became uh, kind of revamped itself about 15 years or so ago. Uh, and so we see these uh, emergence of young churches. And in these young churches, there's energy and there's movement and there's growth and there's excitement and uh, new ways of doing things. And uh, people look in and go, man, that place is exciting. But oftentimes, what do they lack? Wisdom, maturity, unhealthy environments can be created doctrine can be lost. And we see then, we look in and go, ah, those are the young churches, but man, they've, they've, uh, some, some unhealthy things have come out of that. 
And of course, then, we see in lots of churches across the country, and hopefully ours, a generation, a multi-generational experience. This is one of our values, that we believe in a multi-generational experience. And I just want to walk through a couple of verses here in our first point that show both relationally and then from a ministry perspective how the generations are supposed to work together in the context of the church. And so we'll start a little verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4 uh, this morning. We'll be begin there. This is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor. And although this verse is specifically written to a young pastor, I think it can apply to all of those who would consider ourselves young. By the way, I'm allow you to self-select this morning, okay? Whether or not you're young or old. The reason I'm doing that is because last service, a couple women hit me with their purses. So, 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Now, in our modern day, we would say, ah, yes, young people, set an example. And what are you supposed to set an example in? Fashion. How tight are your jeans, right? Or I don't know, tight jeans aren't in anymore. I don't know. See, this is why I'm old. Okay. Um, Or like energy, passion. No. It says, set an example in speech. I think in our modern day, that would say, in how you communicate in every way, including your social media. So an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set an example, young people, on how it looks to follow Jesus at the age that you're at. And maybe the reason Paul is encouraging this is he, he's just saying there's, there's going to be something for the older people in a congregation to look down and to be inspired or challenged by younger people who are setting an example of godliness. So those of us who are young, what a charge for us that we have a role to play in the health of the church to set an example in each and every one of these ways. I, usually, I actually use this verse uh, Wednesday night in our, in our youth service uh, because this isn't just young like 30s or young like 20s, but young like 14, young like in high school or middle school to set an example of godliness. There's much more said about this. Uh, Later, Paul was writing to another young pastor, uh, and he said these words. Uh, And the word in other translations, I use the ESV, uh, uses the word teach at the beginning of each of these verses. And so actually, I'm going to include that, even though you won't see it on your screen. But starting in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Teach older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. A reminder then that, that older men, that you have a, a responsibility then uh, to, to set an example in all of this, but also notice that it says teach. He says teach the older men that. A reminder uh, to all of us that we never outgrow being taught. We don't get to an age where we say, I've learned all of this. No, the gospel um, hits us and, and breaks through our hearts at every age and stage of life. There's always more to learn and more ways where we can be sanctified into becoming like Christ. Older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The steadfastness there, uh, showing what it looks like to live a whole life following Christ. Uh, not just when the kids were at home, or not just when you were young and passionate, but now as you're older, what it looks like to the last day uh, you have here on this earth to follow Jesus, to pursue his mission, to be about Christ, to not get caught up and everything else. This beautiful picture 
of the relationships that we're supposed to have generationally. It goes on. It says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. To who? And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. What a great relationship that the older women are to have with the younger women. On This is what it looks like to love your spouse in that season. This is what I learned in this season of, uh, of our marriage on how to walk through this in a way that honors God. On how to uh, love your kids in this season. To be self-controlled. By the way, everyone's going to be encouraged to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so it shows this beautiful picture then of uh, older women and younger women um, having relationship and knowing each other and uh, teaching. And all of this takes this like mutual respect and humility and mutual submission one to another to learn and to exist as a multi-generational environment. It goes on then again. Uh, and Titus, uh, to Titus, he's actually a little bit more succinct in what he says to the younger men. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. As if like, if they can just figure that one out, that'll be a good start. To be self-controlled. To be self-controlled in all things. Self-controlled in your tongue. Self-controlled uh, in how you react. Self-controlled in all ways. And it shows this beautiful picture of a multi-generational church connected relationally, teaching one another, training one another up in a way then where we all reflect Christ more. Beyond that, though, it's not just the relational side of church that the multi-generational thing is important. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17, we see a different way where this is important. It says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. What's it saying here? That even in the ministry expressions fueled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that ministry is done best when it is done multi-generationally. When there are old and middle-aged and young all operating out of their spiritual gifts and bringing uh, who they are and who God has made them to be and the gift they into the context of the church. That ministry is most powerful when it is multi-generational. That we can learn from each other. I know some of you have said this on your way home. Man, Stephen is really young. Right? I know this because some of you have told me that. Okay? And, uh, and for you, you're in a setting right now or an environment where it is the first time where you're like, you've looked at your pastor and you're like, he barely can grow a beard. Okay? And I'll say this. I, I appreciate and honor your ability to come and be like, all right, you're younger, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn. And, and in the same way then that we all have... Uh, an ability to learn from each other when we humble ourselves. And then when we allow the Holy Spirit to use people of all ages. And we try to model this as a church, both operationally and practically, okay? Um, and, and so here's a couple of ways we've done that. As a church, our elder team has somebody in their 70s, somebody in their 50s, and me in, our, in my 30s. Uh, as a staff uh, as a church, we have one staff member in their 60s, one in their 50s, two in their 40s, one in their 30s, one in their 20s, and an intern in her teens. 
We try to model this multi-generational approach uh, both in our staff and uh, in our elder, our leadership team, but then also in our, our ministry. Uh, and so every Tuesday morning, Nancy uh, uh, leads a Bible study on Tuesday mornings, okay? Nancy is um, older than 25, okay? Um, and, and then we also have uh, another Bible study that meets on Wednesday, Wednesdays that's led by somebody in their 30s, okay? Um, Nancy's older than 55 too. Okay. All right. I love you, Nancy. All right. Now, my point was that we have people of different age groups leading Bible studies. And we try to practice this because there's strength in us being a multi-generational experience, learning from each other in that way. As a church, um, two years ago from today, which I think this was, uh, this is the two-year anniversary of the last Sunday before shutdown. So two years ago from today, the demographics of our church looked like this. Okay, and hopefully you can read that chart. And uh, it's an amazing chart, uh, and it was like 25% in each um, area or each age range. And, uh, and we think as we've grown that, that that has stayed relatively true. We haven't done the math on it uh, like we did back then. Uh, but this was one of the most startling and amazing things that we saw when we first saw this uh, as a reality. And I hope it is a reflection that this is God's church, and he wants his church, as he lays out here in the scriptures, to be a multi-generational experience, that we should value this as a church, that we should hold on to it. And what is it? All, by the way, everything I'm going to talk about this morning, the only way it's possible is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the humility of the saints. For us to humbly serve. And I know some of you, you walk out of here and you go, man, I really wish they would turn it down, right? I know others of you walk out and they go, I wish they would turn it up, Right? And this is us, an opportunity for us to practice this, to, to submit and to humble ourselves one to another because we believe in this. So that's the first one, generationally, uh, that can divide or it can make us better. Uh, secondly is denominationally, uh, the, the church splitting over denominations. Now, the very presence of all of the denominations that exist today are the proof that this one is real. Let me give you the biblical evidence against such things first. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, this is Paul's most extended letter uh, on how the church is supposed to operate, and right at the beginning of it, he, ta he tackles this particular issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. Like, this is important. Brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, his appeal is not to like guys. Like, I, I'm Paul and I'm kind of important. No, he appeals through Christ. For Christ's sake. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. United, a similar phrase to that which was used, by the way, in Acts chapter 1 when it said that they were in all in one accord. And so now 25 or 30 years later or so, Paul is saying the same thing that they said back in Acts. To be right people, we need to be in unity. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This won't be on the screen, but the next line is this. Is Christ divided? Is Jesus divided? And what Paul is saying here is, can't we all get along? 
for the sake of the mission of Christ, for the sake of unity in the body, for Jesus' sake, the one who gave up his life, whose body was broken for us. Can't we all get along? Can't we come to unity of mind? And over the years, then, the denominations that exist have predominantly uh, begun to exist over three types of differences. Uh, and the, the, the first one is doctrinal disputes. The second one is methodological disputes. And the third one uh, is governmental disputes. Uh, and so the first one, what do we believe? The second one, how uh, do we operate? And the third one, how are we structured? And these three things through the years have divided the church. And uh, it's pretty easy to see how this happens. Uh, everyone started together. And at some point in time, they were having a conversation and something came up and they looked at each other and they go, well, I don't believe that. And so this group took a step this way. And this group took a step this way. And then these people were hanging out here and they were having a conversation. And, and then eventually at some point they looked at each other and said, well, I don't believe that. And so then that group stepped this way, but that group remained and that group remained and that group did the same thing on the other side. And then they did it again 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 and then they did it again. And then we look out and you have to Google denominational charts to try to understand what the heck happened. And Paul writes a letter, and Jesus prays a prayer. And in Acts, it says, it's all of one mind, brought together by the Holy Spirit. So how do these begin to happen? How did this breakdown happen? Again, it typically starts doctrinally. What do we believe? What do we believe? And uh, the doctrinal disputes tend to revolve around one of four different categories. One of four different categories. By the way, the way we say it around here is that we believe in a post-denominational church, a post-denominational gathering of the saints. Now, by definition, we are non-denominational because we're not connected to a denomination, but we say we believe in a post-denominational church experience. And what we mean by that is that we have cho chosen to unify around core doctrine. By the way, before I get into any of this, let me say, by what I'm saying this morning, I am not saying that we don't believe in doctrine. I'm not saying that doctrine isn't important. What I am saying is that we have chosen to unify around core doctrine. And we have eight doctrinal statements that are really like 50 doctrinal points and um, all of Protestantism and evangelicalism that is accepted as traditional or orthodox Christianity would look at those statements and say, yes, 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 yes. And anyone who wouldn't say yes, the church for 2,000 years would look in and say, that's a heretic. That's a heretic if you don't say yes to these statements. And so what we've done is we have taken those statements and said, let's rally around those and let's not divide over the places where half of the people say yes and half of the people say no. Now, where does this typically find itself? Four categories where it typically finds itself. The first one is egalitarianism versus complementarianism, the role of genders. The second one is continuationism versus cessationism, which is the role of the Holy Spirit in the present church age. The third one is Calvinism versus Arminianism. This one just leads people to punching each other, okay, when they begin to argue uh, the discussion around predestination and our salvation. And the number four, uh, the fourth one is all end times theology. And so amillennialism, dispensationalism, or fill-in-the-blankism. These four have tended to divide the church 
over the years. It is these four that have led to all of these conversations. And let me tell you the one thing that is in common with all of them. At some point in time, somebody in that group looked at the other group and said, if you would just believe the Bible, we could stay together. If you just believe the Bible. And looking at the entire groups out there, they would go, yeah, if those guys just believed the Bible, we would still be unified. At some point, we have to decide. What's more important? Our doctrinal pride or church unity? What's more important to you? Your doctrinal pride or church unity? Because every one of these groups, guess what? Thinks they're right. Or they wouldn't exist. And not only thinks they're right, thinks they're right to the finest point and detail. What if there's a better way? What if you really could unify around the core doctrine and have enough humility and grace one toward another to look at your brother and sister who disagrees on one of these points that I have laid out and said, I don't understand how you arrived at that conclusion, um, but I'm, I'm humble enough to listen to your scriptural basis for it and then begin to talk through it because I still want to walk hand in hand with you. Because I believe in Jesus's prayer because I believe in Paul's instruction that was appealing to Christ's name because I can humble myself enough to walk with you in that difference yeah you know how most of us deal with this by the way you hear me reading through that and most of you out there you're like okay yeah I get that here's the good thing this is in your head you're like this is the good news though as I think about those four Stephen's pretty smart and he's a Christian so he probably agrees with me and that's just how you arrive at, at like being comfortable, right? You're like, he probably agrees with me on, on, on these issues. And I might, and I might not. In fact, in a room this large, I'm sure I disagree with some of you on some of those points. And guess what? I love you. And I want to walk hand in hand with you as we follow Christ for the sake of his mission and for the good of people. And I think we can do that. I think we can do that. And so that's the, the first one. Uh, denominationally, we get split. We get divided over those things. But then here's what happens, by the way. You do all of that doctrinal division, and you get down to here, and you're dividing over those finer points. And so then you got a group that's already been divided through all of those doctrinal points, and they get here. Uh, and then the question gets, po uh, gets posed, uh, well, how are we actually going to operate this church? How do we, what are our methods going to be? And then you go into high church versus low church. All right, high church is more liturgical. Low church is more, doesn't follow or a set rhythm or a set schedule. We're more of a low church church. Uh, and then you get into the question of traditional versus modern. Like how much are we going to change in how we do things? And so there's traditional high church and there's modern high church and there's traditional low church and there's modern low church. And then uh, you get under that and you're going to go, well, are we attractional or are we missional? In other words, is it about the saints being equipped and going out or is it about creating an environment where people can come in? And so then you have people who line up on all of the doctrine, right? And they're there on the doctrine and then they get there and they go, and we're definitely definitely going to be a high church. And somebody looks and goes, no, we're not. And so now you have the high church who believes that. And then you have a low church that believes that. And then they go, well, we're definitely traditional, right? We're not changing. Like drums are evil, right? And the other guy's like, dude, I just bought a drum set. 
well, then I guess we have to start another church just because you bought a drum set at a garage sale. And we laugh, but that's probably how it happened. Because I got this drum set and I'm playing it. So now drum set church is down here. Non-drum set church is over here. They actually believe the same things. Their methods are just different. And then you take it one step further, you get to the third thing that divides, and it's economics. And so they're all the way down here, and non-drum set church is over here, and non-drum set church is like, okay, we're going to go start our church right here, and it's going to attract those kind of people because they can live here. And the other church is like, well, we're going to start it over here, and it's going to attract these kind of people. And so now we're divided on economics. If you ever wondered how we got here, this is how. This is how. Paul says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers, that you be of one mind. That you be of one mind. Methodologically, by the way, as a church, and, uh, and then underneath that, oh, I, I even forgot governance, because um, that'll divide people too. Governance is, there's three main branches. Episcopalian, uh, which is like from the top, we say everything. Uh, Presbyterian, which is like an elder-led, uh, sometimes more of like a regional thing. Uh, and then thirdly uh, is congregational, which is just like a democracy church, uh, you know, where we're local and we make all of our own decisions. That's the next round of it all. I mean, so there's even more of that going on. And, and so coming to redemption and being a part of Redemption Church, by the way, uh, as all of this begins to work through it from a denominational perspective, we've decided we're going to unify around core doctrine. Uh, and, and this might be hard for some of you to swallow, but I just want you to know that those four that I laid out, if you have to know that you know that you have to know that I agree with you on one of those four at some point in time, you're probably not going to like it here. And I love you. And I don't want to be prideful in that. But I'm just telling you that if we're going to hold this as a value, that at some point in time, that might become a problem. And I'll talk to you. I'll have a conversation with you. I will. And some of them I feel more strongly than I do about others. But in the end, I want to unify us around core doctrine. And then underneath that, like on the method side of it, by the way, um, I mean, we just are who we are, right? You see us, I, I don't know, we're like a low church, kind of modern, uh, probably a mix between attractional and missional church. And some of you are like, I have no idea what you just said. And that's okay. And then government, like, you know, we're an elder-led, staff-operated church. And I just bring this up to say that part of being, like, part of redemption is coming in and being like, okay, I see what's happening here, and I'm excited about what's happening here. And one of the things that all of us need to do as we come around this is to realize that we all have church backgrounds and we all have church past. And what we're not trying to do is to say, well, I used to do it like this, and I really like redemption, but redemption would be better if we just did this like I used to do. Or, or the other thing that can't happen is for us to be like, oh man, and I was back in this environment and that environment was so screwed up and so I'm going to step up into this environment but I'm really not excited about what's going on here. I'm just angry about what was back there. 
And what makes, I think, this work and what I think God wants to pour his spirit into is a group of people that does have all of these past and previous experiences but comes together not just thinking about what the past was but excited about what exists and where God wants to take it. In other words, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and where he's leading this particular church and not keep our eyes fixed on what we've come out of. And some of you are like, well, God never changes. <laughs> God doesn't change fundamentally. Of course he does not. But look at the last 2,000 years. He changes all the time the methods that he chooses to employ. The doctrine doesn't change, but his methods are different. And so what we're saying is we just, God, we just want to follow you in the present. And are we going to get it perfectly every time? No. No. But the Holy Spirit can teach us through that. He can actually make us better and stronger in it. And so then this, uh, the, these things, they've tended to divide. This was Paul's hope that we would do it. And then I kind of already alluded to the third one a little bit, uh, that it is a, an economical divide, right? And uh, when we uh, first started, we were a Perrysburg church. I wouldn't say that we were really like a Perrysburg church, um, but we were in Perrysburg. And then we moved out here to Monclova. And it has been interesting um, to watch over the last year and a half or so that as we have moved out here, we have become simultaneously more suburban and more country at the same time. In other words, there are more SUVs and more F-250s. More cowboy boots and more heels. And at the same time that that has happened, uh, we've also seen like an uptick in, uh, in people who, uh, you know, they, they, they're more of means or whatever. Uh, and at the same time, we've seen more widows. We've seen more single moms. Uh, we have seen uh, more people that, that are not typically classified as like of means. And it has been a beautiful thing. And I think a beautiful thing that a church would exist like that because it, one, it humbles all of us. Two, sometimes it makes us sit down to, next to someone who outside of the context of the gospel and the church, we would probably never see sit next to someone like that. Oh, and it creates awesome opportunities. It creates awesome opportunities. Like, uh, this happened recently. Like, uh, a single mom goes through a tough time, emails us and says, hey, I've got two weeks where I'm not going to be able to work or make income, and without thinking about it, we say, somebody write a $500 check and go give it to her. And when we exist in an environment like this, across those economic lines, we can do stuff like that. And I think this makes us more like what Christ sought. I think this is what Peter was saying. He's like, don't divide. You ever wonder why the Mormons are so powerful for not having very many of them? Because they're unified. They own a whole state. And they knock on my door. Imagine what the church would look like if we were all on the same page. Oh, and we can't control that. But we can, we can control us. We can control us. And we can look at all of these things that have divided the church for so long, and we can say, God, we want to be right people, and so we want to unify around these things. Uh, Peter, who was in that upper room with those 120 people, um, 30 years or so later, after that upper room moment, I think was reflecting on all that he had seen. I mean, imagine Peter, right, 30 years later uh, from uh, leaving off of that, that text that I read at the beginning, when they're all up there, they're like waiting for the Holy Spirit, like, what is this gonna look like? Like, how is he gonna move? And now 30 years later, Peter is looking back and he is reflecting back on all that he has seen God do, which is amazing. I mean, the church has just 
grown. It has exploded, right? Like we take it for granted that there are 120 of them in a small part of Jerusalem. And 30 years later, this thing had spread to the world. And Peter is reflecting on it and he is looking out and he's writing his second to last piece of uh, information to the church. And he writes these words. And I think the words that he wrote then are the same words that he would write to the church today. But you, church, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you, mo- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He said, you are God's people. Once you weren't, once you were all over the place, you, you were um, scattered about, you believed whatever you believed, but God through his sovereign plan, what he has done is he has reached people, all sorts of different people. And the whole book of Acts is talking about all of these different types of people that are reached. And now he's looking out and he's saying, and look how God sovereignly has brought all of you together. And why did he do it? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who calls you out of darkness into light, who brings you from death into life. He says he, he has formed us together. Look at what he's done, Peter's saying. We're not one people. We are God's people. We are united under the cross of Christ because we are all mutually saved by his blood, now brothers and sisters, and then we are unified and brought together by one Holy Spirit. And when you bring this all together, like practically, you're like, well, what does this, I mean, what does this even look like? And I want to just give you a little bit of a picture of what it looks like as soon as I find my card, because I got cheat notes on this one. And some of you are be like, those are a lot of words that I'm not sure I completely understand. But I think what Peter is writing is something like this. When you put it all together, here's what you get. A married, middle-aged, female, suburban business owner who is an egalitarian, cessationist, Arminian, a millennialist out of a modern high church missional Episcopalian governed church body sitting right next to a single male labor working country boy who is a complementarian Calvinist continuationist dispensationalist out of a traditional low church seeker sensitive congregationally led body sitting right next to each other singing the same songs reading through the book of Acts serving out of their spiritual gift giving their consistent giving pattern because they believe that everyone is invited to experience redemption and this is God's church that's what you get that's what you get I mean, we're going to start looking at each other differently. There's a lot, there's an easier way to do it, by the way, sometimes. I mean, there's an easier way. And the easier way is this, and this is the path. There's two paths. The easier way is to continue to have conversations that go, wait, you think what? Okay. That's the easier way. I think the way of the scriptures is to go, you think, why? Let's stay together. Let's walk hand in hand. Help me understand in the scriptures, now we can sharpen each other. Why are you seeing that? Help me see it. And then we learn from each other, and we actually get stronger in our doctrine. We get stronger in what we believe. We get more studious of the scriptures. We wrap it in humility, and we walk together. 
And we say, Jesus, when it comes down to it, we just want to see you move. We want to see you move in us, and we want to see you move to those who need you. And so keep us together. Let's pray. Father, I wonder if there were these key moments in history where you look down at two people arguing over something and through your spirit tried to tell them, stop, stop. And they didn't listen. Father, here we are. And we don't want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But we are here. We're in this town with people who need you, with the gospel that needs to break out. And so will you hear our humble prayer that we would be forged together, unified, humbly trying to live out the high priestly prayer, Paul's encouragement, and Peter's reflection to be the church that Jesus came to plant, your church, because everyone is invited to experience redemption because you have taken us from darkness into light and because we desperately want to see that happen for others. We cannot do this on our own. You've seen the mess we've made of it when we do. So Father, you do it through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.